You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for listening to The Agenda's podcast from today, the 11th of October. And as Dubai's Assembly for Generative AI kicks off at the Museum of the Future, we looked at the thorniest issue when it comes to the life-changing tech, namely regulation. Now, do we need guide rails or do we need much more restrictive measures? We discussed it with the experts. John Marshall, he's from the World Ethical Data Foundation, and also AI lawyer Luke Scanlon from Pinsent Masons. Meanwhile, we've all heard about flat pack furniture being more sustainable. But what about a flat pack car? We spoke to the designers of a brand new vehicle. And of course, congestion. It's driving us all mad. But how is it impacting on delivery services? We heard from Kibsons and Washman. And it was a really interesting discussion because we discovered that there are more than one types of congestion that they face. And in fact, it's not necessarily the roads that are proving the biggest problem. Plus, would you want to listen to AI-generated music from an AI-generated pop star? Well, there are several now making their way up the charts. We spoke to musicologist Dr. Shara Rambaran about what it means for real-life flesh-and-blood stars. And we got the latest on the Cricket World Cup and Lionel Messi's potential new move with Chris McCarty, our head of sport. Yeah, welcome back to the agenda. Georgia here. And we're looking into the future this afternoon uh, and at the tech that is likely to pretty much entirely change the way we live and work over the next decade. Uh, That is because Dubai's Assembly for Generative AI kicked off this morning at the Museum of the Future. Lots of people come into town, uh, lots of speakers. You've got ministers, CEOs, investors, creatives, academics. We love a conference here at Dubai Eye Radio because it means we get all the important people in the world coming to Dubai ready to talk to us on basically talk to us in the studio, talk to us on the radio. Um, One of the major issues that the forum will be discussing is regulation. It is probably one of the biggest issues that they're facing when it comes to artificial intelligence. And when I say they, I mean everybody from governments to the, I suppose, the the inventors who who have to sort of consider whether or not they want to be regulated or not, whether they want to be involved in creating those laws. Senior figures in the industry have already highlighted what they see as a need for control. Um, Here's Sam Altman, for example. He's the CEO of OpenAI. You'll have heard of him because they invented ChatGPT. Here he is talking about regulation while he was in Abu Dhabi in June. I totally believe it is possible to not stifle innovation and to address the big risks. I think it would be a mistake to go regulate the current models of today. I think we need the thriving open source community. I think we need companies like ours and others pushing on models. But it's important to remember that we're on an exponential curve. The number one thing about this technology that I think people don't understand is that in a few years, GPT-4 is going to look like you know, a little toy that was not that impressive. And so we have to simultaneously say, on the stuff that's not very dangerous, let's make sure to get the benefits. But as we approach the stuff that can be very dangerous, let's make sure we come together as a globe. And I hope this place can play a real role in this. Let's make sure we come together as a globe and put some guardrails on this. 
He sounds very measured there, but he's also been quoted as saying, we face serious risk. We face existential risk. No one wants to destroy the world. You get a little bit of a sense there of um, of quite what is at stake when you're considering uh, this new technology. And that is why we, ha- we wanted to have a conversation about it. You know, we wanted to discuss where to start with regulation. Earlier on, I was joined by Luke Scanlon, who's an AI regulatory expert at Pinsent Masons, and also John Marshall, who's an executive director of the World Ethical Data Foundation. You might not have heard of them, that they're a nonprofit organization that examines the opportunities and problems that can arise from new tech. John began by explaining to me just how complex this question of regulation is. The models which are described as LLMs are sometimes contrasted with um, foundation models. So foundation models are uh, a little more, as the name implies, fundamental. They do the chat GPT-like things. But it's also the case that they are able to perform other tasks and activities. So they can you know, work to describe images that you feed into it, or they can produce images that you're feeding text into. And the range of use cases that are possible with that make it a much more sort of interesting proposal than probably how the majority of people are using ChatGPT. Now, ChatGPT itself is already, I think, evidently a, a, a problem if you're interested in disinformation or even just misinformation, which is one of the major problems with GPT. These things can be quite unreliable. But the difficulty, in fact, of the way that you even began to introduce the area was significant, and it isn't your issue. People are a bit mystified. They don't really understand the tech. It's uh, it's a little dizzying. How are they to understand the technologies in such a way that they can uh, get a better sense of the way that they, their society, have been affected? Uh, What's brilliant from everything you've just said is you've made everyone realise, I think, just how broad... Uh, an industry this is, how broad a topic this is. And there's this big sense of the public playing catch-up. And, mm. of course, I imagine the, the legal services playing catch-up. Luke, would you say, even though you work in fintech, and, and, you know, obviously that your work has now expanded into more AI regulation, do you feel that sense of everyone not really understanding what it is and everyone trying to play catch-up? Yes, I think that's right, George. I think we're at a very interesting time at the moment because it's it's very early on. We need to understand the technology. We're coming to understand the technology, um, how it fits into the you know the the regulatory um, framework, and and really you know coming back to some of the points you both made, it, it is questions around you know what are we regulating? Because if it's all technology, because sometimes definitions of AI can be so broad that it'll encompass all software that you know that including um you know software that that searches through emails for for spam emails is that ai well well maybe it is um so, so there has to be some distinction as to what is ai what's not ai if we're trying to regulate technology but is that really you know how regulation should take place or should it regulate really more the relationships between people so you know what are the responsibilities of the providers of the data what are the responsibilities of those who who are um, who are devising the the algorithms and then what are the responsibilities of businesses for their different use cases you know depending on what they're putting AI to use for and and you know there's different as, as John's bringing out already you know we're, t- we're talking about LLMs and um, foundation models looking at those types of you know core 
technology um, versus, you know, general use AI, which we're all getting familiar with, with ChatGPT and its its um, competitors like Anthropics and um, Claude2, um, and then more specific AI that, you know, businesses might use for a very specific purpose that may be very, very useful and, and may be very, very safe. John, I realise that, that we might have to take it back to basics in some ways. You know, what is it that if we are going to regulate, when we say AI, what is it that we're looking to regulate within the sort of artificial intelligence umbrella in your view? So that that's a very interesting and complicated question. And it's complicated because what the, what the aim of regulation is, is to balance a whole range of competing commitments. So they want innovation and industry in, in a domestic sense. They want trade and markets and business to flourish internationally and for there to be transactions. They also want regulation that not only protects, but also advances, I think, fundamental freedoms and rights for individuals and society as a whole. And it's not a trivial matter. It does sound like the European Union is taking the lead on this. And I suppose in many ways, although Britain is now outside the European Union, Luke, at least you are nearby in the United Kingdom. Do you think that... Um, do you think that's helpful? Do you think that is there a sense within the legal community that the where the EU leads, other countries will follow? Um, no, I wouldn't think so. I, I think that there's there's a few issues here. It's it's some choices need to be made about the type of regulation that we want over AI and, and what's best in terms of um, protecting. Uh, individual rights in terms of um, balancing the different interests. Um, the EU regulation has start has taken a product liability starting point. So they've thought thought in terms of, you know, products, in terms of cars, in terms of manufacturing. Um, that doesn't quite fit the technology. Uh, context and that's led to a lot of discussion and a lot of renegotiation as to what should go into the law. So they're still developing that at the moment. Um, the UK has taken a slightly different approach. They've looked at more of the principles and you know and and um, regulating the outcomes of the use of AI. So, uh, but it is converging between the two different approaches. And and then you know somewhere like China has taken a completely different approach and tried to to regulate different types of AI. So recommendation algorithms look at them specifically generative ai look at that specifically and and you know what what principles what um, rules should attach to that so so we're still at that early stage of looking at what's the best type of law to put in place to regulate ai um the eu's gone a long way but there still is a question whether that's the best way to regulate ai ai um and if you look at in at the detail of the eu act it, there is it is very prescriptive. There's a lot of steps to be taken by businesses if they are to comply. And, you know, the technology is changing every day. So the question is, you know, are they the most appropriate steps at the moment um, that are being put in place? Well, th th that's still being negotiated. Do you think that ultimately there is a real fear among businesses that are using AI or developing AI that they might find themselves stifled by regulation? I think so. I think there's a few different things there. So one, there's, um, as, as John touched on before, there's access to to data, access to AI itself. So we have we have, you know, the the leading players in place, so that they have developed their models. Um, if regulation comes into place, what about businesses in the future and have, having the same opportunity to develop models without such a um, large regulatory burden? So there's there's those issues. Um, then then there's issues around, um, you know you know what 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 you use it for and and of course um 
you know the different use cases that can be developed. Um, so so there's there's definitely concerns about around being able to innovate if if regulation's too stringent. But at the same time, I think a lot of the um, you know the the startup community, the um, those in innovation, you know, really see the benefit of having clear yep. guidelines or clear you know risk um, frameworks in place because you know the, the, there are serious threats and serious issues around this. Fascinating to hear there from two uh, really eminent experts in this field. Uh, the voice just there was Luke Scanlon. He's an AI regulatory expert at Pinson Masons. He's a lawyer. And also John Marshall, who's executive director of the World Ethical Data Foundation. Uh, he's actually speaking at the Dubai Assembly for Generative AI tomorrow. Uh, lots to discuss uh, leading from that topic. I feel like we barely scraped the surface, but certainly something we will continue to cover uh, right here on the agenda. Welcome back to the agenda. Georgia Tolley here, keeping you company, uh, hopefully keeping you entertained all the way through to one o'clock today. And I absolutely love this next story that we're going to look into. Because if I say the word, and I have to be very careful with this, for some reason I, I keep on tripping over it. But if I say the words flat pack, What do you automatically think of? Could it possibly be a certain Swedish company? I certainly spent uh, a few hours over the weekend in Ikea building furniture uh, for my son. He's got to the age now where he's decided that he wants black furniture in his room. Um, which is interesting. But never mind. Um, we, we, I, got, I got very good with a screwdriver. Um, I have to say, it was strangely satisfying. It's like Lego, but, but bigger. Anyway, we're not talking about IKEA today as it happens. Um, we're actually talking about a flat pack car because the makers of the lovely O prototype vehicle say that it is low in environmental impact. It's made of light collision safe materials. But you can build it from a flat pack sort of box. You know, it literally comes in pieces that you can then build yourself. And the idea is that obviously it's a Swedish-based company, you know, home of the flat pack. But they want to license the technology to firms across the world to make the roads of our cities safer. But would it work in the UAE? That is the overarching question. Well, to find out, I'm joined now on Teams by Lovely's CEO and co-founder, Hawkan Lutz. Uh, Hawkan, thank you very much for joining me. I am very enthusiastic about this car. How did it come into being? And why is it a bit? Why is it a good idea to flat back a car? Thanks for having me this morning. Um, it's a good idea to flat pack a car because it, it um, simplifies the whole distribution process, thereby cutting emissions and costs for the customer. So, will you literally? put it in a box that's only about sort of 50 centimetres tall, so to speak, and then send it around the world to be assembled, I presume, in factories or by mechanics? Well, not exactly, no. That wouldn't be uh, totally practical or efficient. Um, It will be distributed totally, what they call a complete knockdown. So... Uh, the vehicles would be distributed in parts to these these uh, assembly factories. And yes, they would have to be factories. You couldn't do it yourself for your son at home. Well, that is good news because I suppose my primary question is, you know, how safe can they 
be if they're being assembled in different places around the world. There's a certain sort of surety. There's a certain certainty in, you know, all the cars rolling out of the doors of the same factory. Exactly, yes. And that's why you have to have um, a factory that has um, an approved quality management system um, that is tested, you know, and and approved by the proper authorities in each location. Now, you've mentioned sustainability a couple of times now. What is it that makes this flat pack car more eco-friendly? And by the way, we will put a picture of it on our, on our social media so you know what we're, we're talking about, so our audience knows what we're talking about. But yeah, what would, why, why does it have such sort of good environmental credentials? Well, um, excuse me, I'm just going to start by clarifying that, yeah, we have developed this vehicle, the Lovely O, but Lovely actually uh, develops technology for light vehicles. So um, anyone that would, well, with, the, with, with the correct knowledge, could on our platform with our technology develop their own vehicle. However, every vehicle developed on our platform it's very light. Um, the lovely always about 400 kilos. Now that means that you can use very little batteries in the vehicle. So first of all, you have you have uh, very little material, very, very little raw material, you know, which which is in itself sustainable. Second, you use very small batteries, very light batteries which is super sustainable because batteries are, are definitely not very sustainable in themselves. And thirdly, it's, um, it's built from materials that are easily recyclable. So you cut on emissions in production when you use it and when you recycle it. How soon do you think we could potentially see this technology on the roads here in the UAE? Are you looking to license the tech to the Middle East, for example? Well, yes, we definitely are. Uh, I think that Dubai, UAE, to my knowledge, there is not at this time uh, a sort of legal space where these fit in. I am not aware that Dubai has uh, the category that in in Europe is known as L7E. Um, I think that maybe there, there are moves towards it um, but I'm really not certain. So at this time, I'm. I fear that. May I say you're a little bit behind? No, you can't say that. The, the UAE is always at the forefront of these things. What was L7E? What 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 is that? That sounds. L- like- yeah. So in in Europe, uh, there's uh, quite a few L categories of vehicles, and L, I guess, originally stands for light, and that would include all all motorcycles, uh, tricycles. And quad bikes. Ah, okay. And exactly. And quad bikes, there, there's quite a few quad bike categories as well, where the heaviest is actually a four-wheel motorcycle with a body and seatbelts, basically. Okay. It's, it, yeah, so, so that's, that's what we construct. 
it is a properly sort of light vehicle. Certainly, I have to say, it doesn't sound like you've you've been to Dubai yet, but I'm but I'm sure we'd love to have you here. Uh, but but the motorways we have here tend to be about sixteen lane highways, and I think uh, maybe this is the perfect vehicle for more of the residential streets around Jumeirah and Um Sakim. But maybe you wouldn't want to take it uh, on the on the Sheikh Zayed Road with all the trucks. But I will put a picture of it on our social media because the car is an absolute delight. It's so cute, um, and and I'm very enthused by the idea that it can be flat packed and therefore is more eco-friendly. Thank you so much for joining me on the line. Really, really good to speak to you. Uh, really fantastic. That's Hokan Lutz. He is Lovely's CEO and co-founder. And I'm going to busily, during the news, put a picture of that car up on the radio now, but a very intriguing idea indeed. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, welcome back to the show. Great to have you with us. We are talking I mean, it's the topic that everyone's talking about all the time, really, isn't it? We are talking about congestion on the programme. Let's be honest, we have all noticed it. You know that there are those peak hours and you try and avoid those hours so you can get to place A to B, whatever, in the shortest span of time. But I have noticed for the past few weeks, those algorithms don't work anymore. It's almost like the roads are crowded all the time. I mean, it's like we can never plan to get from one place to another on time. We're always stuck in traffic and even our daily commute has increased. So it's just one of those things. I'm wondering where are all these people coming from? So I have stopped booking meetings in after three o'clock just because of the amount of time it's taken to get to and from one side to the other. So if anybody suggests a meeting after three o'clock, it's not going to happen just because of the amount of people that I feel are on the roads at the minute don't want to be on the roads. I think after September that the school is reopened, many people moved to Dubai. I noticed that. And the streets are full of cars and, yeah, traffic is, is really bad nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I can add my voice to that. The school run that used to take 20 minutes in each direction now takes 50. And I know I'm not the only one who struggles with that. And while it is having a massive impact on sort of each and every one of us, Can you imagine the impact that it must be having on businesses in Dubai, you know, with drivers stuck in traffic all the time? We've got used to having a sort of delivery economy here, haven't we? You know, we all stay in our homes and get everything sort of delivered to our doors. But I imagine that that must be coming trickier. You know, it must be harder now for delivery services to keep up with our expectations. So we wanted to find out how they are mitigating the impact on their customers. We want to know how they're mitigating the impact on their uh, bottom line, frankly. And joining us to discuss this topic are two stalwarts in the sort of delivery in space. We've got Halima Jumani, who's the co-founder and director of Kibson's online home delivery in the studio. Welcome, Halima. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here and hello to everyone listening. Yeah, indeed. And Rami Shah, co-founder and CEO of Washman. Thanks for joining us in the agenda again. Hello. Thank you for having me. So um, now, I have. I want to ask you a very, very simple question. First of all, you know whether or not congestion is impacting on your business, um, Halima. I'm going to start with you. It. I mean, you have. Oddly enough, I just got a text message saying that you, my Kibson's delivery is 30 minutes away. To give you a sense <laughs> of how much I use your service, I haven't noticed any difference, to be honest. You know, because of traffic. But but I imagine you and your drivers must have. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's an everyday conversation. It's an everyday issue. And uh, hats off to the delivery team. I have so much regard for and respect for them in terms of what they go through the entire day battling uh, congestion, traffic, the stress of having those deliveries on time, you know, the customer responses in terms of they're late. There is very little forgiving sometimes. And uh, uh, when I am stuck in traffic and I have to complain about my 15 minutes, I do feel embarrassed compared to what they experience. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. What's so interesting about you guys is that I feel like in the last few months, you actually introduced a new service where you could have express delivery within two hours. Yes. Uh, I mean, to introduce that just as congestion sort of went wild in September, um, that must have, you know, that must have stretched you. In one word, brave. I I was going to say. I don't Um, think anyone else is reducing their delivery times right now. That's right. I mean, um, yes, there are companies who do provide 30 minutes, one hour delivery services, but then they also have dark stores. I mean, we are a different model, business model. We have one big warehouse out of which we service because all our fresh produce requires different chill temperatures. So we can't really afford to sprout those around the around the Dubai so quickly. Um, therefore, I think that for us it's a bit harder, and I think we experience the congestion in a in a different way. Having said that, being in this industry for about seven years now in the e-commerce and having most of our founding drivers team with us, there's a huge amount of experience we've uh, built to overcome, mitigate uh, the situation in some way. Uh, but. But, you know, there are some things that are just unavoidable and they annoy us today as much as they did at the beginning. Interesting there to hear about the relationship that Halima at Kibsons has with your drivers, because I know that's a big deal for you, Rami, as well with, you know, you have a really close relationship with your team. So I'd like to first start off. um, I like the traffic. Right. You like the yeah, so it's uh, I have a very uh, weird relationship with it. Me and my co-founder both like it actually, because Dubai is quite seasonal. So you have you know in the summer it gets a little quiet, business gets a little quiet. I sometimes don't want to look at the numbers, right? And I w- I'd rather be in like I don't know Spain enjoying the summer, and then uh, making it back here when the season picks up. So we're always checking the traffic because it's a it's an indication of how well we're going to be doing, and as a growing business. Uh, I get quite excited when I'm stuck in traffic for 50 minutes. I'm like, we're going to have an insane weekend. Um, and it's been, I would say, the last couple of weeks has been records after records uh, for us, which is quite exciting. That is a very interesting way of looking at it because, of course, more people equals more business. I mean, it's a pain in the, you know, because the roads are bad. But that's so interesting that as a small business owner, you're thinking you're looking at cars and seeing dollars, basically, or dirhams. Absolutely. And uh, I, I remember even started, I would say, during uh, Corona, um, where there was a, not a lot of uh, you know, traffic, I would say. It was a little quieter. And there was really the indication that the city's coming back alive again. That is also key because, of course, you do dry cleaning and no one needs their clothes dry cleaned when they're working from home. Exactly. And so cars, it's not just it's not just people, people are going out. It's people going out. Yeah, exactly. And therefore they need their clothes dry cleaned. I mean, how about your your drivers? Have they do they, you know, you know, they all, I bet they all get together, you know, at various stages and you have meetings and you all have WhatsApp groups. You know, are they complaining about the traffic? Yeah, certain areas. Uh, so drivers, uh, I was asking my team yesterday in JBR, uh, that's probably the most difficult area. Um, but I think the approach with customers is setting the right expectations. And we do that through uh, u- the use of algorithms and how we communicate, you know, when we expect to be at your doorstep. 
um, as well as you know incentivizing certain hours to be picked up, disincentivizing if that's a word, uh, certain hours and because it's more expensive, um, and just being more proactive. Um, with customers when a delay is going to happen as opposed to reactive. And that goes a very long way. And, and in general, uh, you know, customers are quite understanding because they, they're going through the traffic, you know, five to eight o'clock in DIFC. It's a gridlock. Um, it is. And they understand that. So, um, and we, we do have a lot of strategies uh, that we play around with. There's a lot of, you know, we've been around the business for eight years. So every year we learn newer strategies. Right now we're exploring what we call as pre-morning deliveries where, you know, uh, traffic on the streets, you know, it's not there, as well as traffic in the elevators, something not to be underestimated because, you know, uh, one building, let's say in DIFC, could take us 20 minutes to go up. Uh, you know, I went through some of these service elevators and you can see the number of Deliveroo and Talabad drivers and other delivery drivers waiting downstairs. And sometimes you don't even make it into the first elevator and they have to wait for the next one. It's like, it's like the train station, right? So that, that is, is so interesting. I hadn't yeah. thought of that. And I've seen that myself when I had to go to an, uh, normally our building is quite low rise, but I remember I went for a meeting somewhere and I was, I was made late for the meeting because I couldn't get in, a, in an elevator. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is, I mean, that, that is a completely different component, the idea of congestion in buildings as well. Halima, do you do a similar thing? Do you sort of guide customers towards different times for their deliveries in the hope that they might, you know, to relieve pressure on, on your drivers that are facing congestion? Um, no, I think that we have different um, options for customers to choose from. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the more spread out our uh, delivery options are, the better it is for us to be able to plan. So given the fact that uh, we deliver within four hours, four hours is enough for us to kind of plan properly. And then we have a fleet that we can divide sensibly. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think setting expectations is very important. Uh, once the customers have chosen their slot, that's their expectation. As long as we stay within those and we do not over-promise and under-deliver, we try to under-promise and over-deliver. So I think that's the, that's the key to achieving exactly. satisfaction. Uh, I'm going to come back to you both in just a minute. Salima Jumani, Rami Shah from Kibsons and Washman, uh, respectively. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Yeah, welcome to the show. We are discussing the impact of congestion on delivery companies this morning. Two fantastic guests join me in the studio. Halima Jumani, who's the co-founder and director of Kipson's Online Home Delivery, and Rami Shah, co-founder and CEO of Washman. I have to admit, uh, due disclosure, I use both of those services uh, weekly sometimes bi-weekly, anyway, twice a week. Lovely to have you both join us in the studio and, and thanks for staying with us. Um, Rami, I'm going to come to you. Tell me about how you juggle the logistics um, as far as it comes to congestion. You know, how are you optimizing your drivers to make sure that you're not impacted by traffic jams? Okay, so I, I'd like to start with maybe a bit of history on Washman. It's been uh, about eight years. Initially, when we started, we didn't have all the money in the world to be able to build what we have today, right? So, uh, we needed to create what we called an asset light business model where we were partnering initially with certain laundromats and we invested most of the earlier stage money into the tech um, and our logistics efforts. So we were first a logistics company before 
becoming a laundry uh, company. Today we own everything. Um, that's the stage we're at. But we had to have you know a lot of logistical innovation, and we focus a lot on the algorithms and making sure that we uh, create an expectation that's dynamic for customers, so that uh, you know we can meet it every time. Um, and one of the biggest innovations that had a massive impact on our bottom line was how can we pull logistics uh, so that we don't need to come to your building multiple times. So you have, you know, the component of drop-offs, which is kind of fixed. You know how many drop-offs at what time they're going to happen today. But you have pickups that come in at any time, which are very dynamic, which can really mess around uh, with the optimization of it. So we pl- played around with, you know, time windows, different time windows, dynamic time windows, incentivizing by something called happy hour. And then we realized that through happy hour, you know, if it's to say three hours away because it's a discount, people were leaving their stuff outside of their door just that, you know, for three hours, four hours, just to get that five dirham discount. And we realized, you know what, people, if people are willing to do that, let's just, you know, make that part of the business model. So we came up with the whole, what we call asynchronous uh, logistics, where we don't need to synchronize the time where the driver and the customer need to meet for the pickup and the drop off. And um, we tell the customer, just leave the stuff, the washman bags outside of the door and we'll come and pick them up and then we'll drop, drop them off outside of the door. So we did this pre-corona and it really, you know, made a lot of financial sense um, in a time where we're burning a lot of money. Mm. And um, we actually advised uh, one large laundry operation in um, Korea. Uh, to do the same, and they said, "No way in Korea." You know, people, people are very proper, <laughs> and yeah, and, and safety is a big element, right? Yeah, yeah. That allows us to this to, to do this here. Like, just to give you an idea, um, on a certain, let's on a Sunday, we would do be- between pickups and drop off close to forty thousand, forty to fifty thousand items. Because right? people and people feel safe to leave their stuff and outside the door. Ninety-five percent of that outside is, the door. is outside of the door. So, it's, it is a very special city, and. Um, and we really took advantage of that. that. Uh, Halima, obviously, a slightly different scenario with you and your groceries. You know, they need to be refrigerated or frozen. So you can't sort of be getting people to, well, you can't get your drivers to leave it outside the door. They do need to correspond. But so, so other than congestion, what have you found that delays your drop-offs? You know, because obviously congestion goes without saying. But, but I mean, how about getting into buildings? How about customers not being available? You know, are, are there other elements that delay your, your deliveries? Yes, absolutely. So elevator traffic, we've picked on that a little while ago, but just for the listeners to get an idea, um, there are certain towers which uh, where the drivers need to wait for about 30 to 40 minutes for the lift to arrive. And you've experienced this as well, haven't you, Rami? Yeah. We're, are we going to name the towers? <laughs> well, you can you can imagine going up the tallest uh, you know tower in the world and how long that's going to take. There's a lot of you know it's, there's a lot of security, obviously, and it's just a very tall building. Yes. And so, but what are the, the delays? Only... What are the delay? What What are we talking about? Like a 15 minute delay? Or... 30 to 40 minutes for the elevator to arrive, and then for security to actually escort you up and down as part of the policy. Uh, but then, yeah, the tallest tower is not the only one. We've got so many others. There the, we've got the Princess Tower, the Index Tower. And if you have a fleet of drivers, try allocating them Princess Tower and have a look at their face. You know, they know what is awaiting them. And it's a challenge. Even if you have, let's say, 25 deliveries up, up and down one tower, which, which seems very uh, efficient, it's still very difficult to deliver within the time slot. And, uh, yeah, and, the, and the congestion and the waiting time uh, for parking before you get to the elevator is another component in this uh, logistical field, right? So there is one thing to battle the traffic on the road, then you get to a point and you have to go around the building a few times. 
with with bike riders, I can understand that there is some way of kind of you know parking your bike. But if you think of a, ch- a temperature controlled delivery van, it's That's, a whole different yeah. game because you ha- you need to park near the front door of the building. Otherwise, you're carried fro- you're carrying frozen items, heavy frozen items through the streets. Yes, and stressing about those ice creams melting on the way oh, good and Lord. the customer complaint coming up, which is what we want to avoid. So, of course, um, again, there are so many things we do to mitigate, but. Uh, the, Parking problems are not something we can solve as businesses. We need external support for that. So hence, voicing here is a, is a privilege. Do you know, I have to say, I'm, as ever, I could continue this conversation for ages. And we haven't even teased out some of the other elements that this, you know, the other concerns that this congestion is causing. You know, things like if you've got lots of delivery vans waiting in traffic, then that can cause congestion, uh, sustainability issues. You know, it, it creates more fumes. But I was absolutely fascinated to discover that it's not just congestion on the roads that you guys are struggling with, but congestion in buildings and and, and waiting for lifts. So thank you both very much. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Uh, Sadly, we've got to stop. It's the time for the news, but I've really enjoyed talking to both of you. So thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to Halima Jamani, co-founder and director of Kibson's online home delivery, and Rami Shah, co-founder and CEO of Washman. This is a conversation that can run and run. I think we need to do some sort of open house with the RTA or something, so a sort of big sort of planning with all the delivery services and everyone comes together and we figure out best practice. It feels like there's there's space for that to keep the city moving you're listening to the uae's number one talk radio station this is the agenda with georgia tolly on dubai i 103.8 good to have you back with us here on the agenda and i am about to introduce a brand new music music star who is making waves take a listen to this So that is Nanuri. And in fact, uh, she, and I put this inverted commas, she filmed her music video to that song, Dominoes, uh, outside the five on the palm in Dubai. Except she didn't because she, despite having landed a record deal with Warner Music, she doesn't really exist. She's actually a digital character created uh, by a German designer called Joerg Zuber. Uh, she's, she's very pretty. She's got blue hair. She doesn't look real in any way at all. She looks like a cartoon. Um, but what's extraordinary is that she will be virtually rubbing shoulders with huge stars. I mean, Warner Music, uh, Warner Brothers Music has hired, you know, they've got Dio Lipa, they've got Ed Sheeran, they've got Cardi B in their library of, of stars. And then now they've got Nanori, um, who has got blue hair and she's got a doll face and she has now got a record deal. I mean, who would have thought it? <laughs> I mean, it's not very good music, is it? Let's be honest. I, I, I don't like it, but maybe other people enjoy it. And I, and I suppose in many ways, she's not the first ever artificial music star. If you think about Gorillas, I mean, you know, it was backed by the front man for Blur and I always thought of it as his band. But, but you know, they, they had a, all their videos were cartoons. But the fact that Nonori's vocals have been created solely using artificial intelligence has led to her being labelled the very first AI pop star. But is she start of a new trend or is she just a novelty? Let's find out with musicologist Dr. Shara Rambaran, who joins me on Teams. Shara, thank you so much for joining me on the line. To what extent is AI already being used in the industry? This feels quite new. I like the headline, 
But is it as new as it as it seems? Hello, good morning. Um, yes, well, the concept of virtual music is not new, but it's the trend of AI that is kind of dominating the music and creative industry. So, um, for example, virtual pop stars, as you said, it can be traced back to gorillas or even far back as Alvin and the Chipmunks and, and Disney and Looney Tune cartoons or any, any form of musical animation. But with AI, we are witnessing now um it's generating lyrics it's generating music it's giving more opportunity and accessibility for amateurs and professional musicians to remix and create music with so we are witnessing it and even when we go on streaming platforms we see playlists created for us by ai so yeah it's it's in front of us perhaps without us realizing um it more do you think people are, I mean, I, I mean, back in the old days, you'd have a, you'd feel a personal relationship with the star. I mean, historically, fans fell in love with the stars, you know, fell in love with their pop stars. You know, they want to go and see them. They want to touch them. They reach out at concerts desperate to touch them. Can a, can a virtual reality or, or an AI pop star create the same passion in its, in its fans? I think it's going to create another kind of fandom and another kind of vir- experience or virtual experience in terms of having the opportunity uh, to experience music for those who can't physically go to a concert or what have you for whatever reason. So, um, yeah, so I think it just creates more opportunity, but I totally <laughs> agree, um, you know, that perhaps that momentum of phys- physically going to a concert is challenged uh, but I like to think it would it does create more opportunity I mean especially if you asked me this question a couple of years ago during the pandemic I, yeah I would be a bit concerned the idea of not going to a concert again but I like to think now it just creates more opportunity and it is expanding our experience and even the creative industries in terms of experiencing and witnessing and hearing music in some ways, it's democratising the musical industry. I mean, we hear a lot about how important image is and how, for example, young female pop stars feel they can't make it unless they're literally magazine cover beautiful. Um, that, that in, then in some ways, it, you, you get this, if you're just going to use the visuals of a cartoon or AI visuals, um, then it could be said to democratise that situation. What, I mean, what does it mean, though, for your real life, your flesh and blood stars who might feel that this is competition, that, that this is maybe sort of, um, I suppose, undermining their oeuvre? Irv, yeah. I say that right. Irv, it is. You know, it, I I can definitely understand why um, a lot of musicians and creators and creatives are feeling a bit challenged by this. Um, yes, um, in time, I think it will. You know, it pe- the people will merge. It, it will. There's room for everyone. I like to think there's room for everybody. Um, for example, th- there's been many creations in terms of virtual pop stars or AI stars, which are not as big as Hatsumiku or Gorillas, right? So, and and some of these do come across as novelty factor. So, I don't. I don't think we should be feel threatened anytime soon because if that is the case, and you know, further down the line, if one day. VI or AI um, replace <laughs> the physical musicians and singers and songwriters, then every profession 
it will happen to every profession. But I like to think we don't need to worry about that um, just yet. Really lovely to hear from you. Musicologist there, Dr. Shara Rambaran. Thank you so much for joining us on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Really uh, loving the comments that are coming through on this subject. Alex says there are already an estimated 100,000 new tracks published online every day. This volume is likely to increase 10 times with AI music and there'll be so much dross that people are going to crave real people singing songs about real experiences that make you feel real emotions. Uh, Muzak of AI versus versus real music of humans. Uh, Alex doesn't think there's any risk at all. And a, a quick plug, he says, check out my band, Monks on the Moon. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the show. Lots of people getting in touch uh, with suggestions for how we could try to solve the congestion problem. Ibrahim says, uh, why not stagger the school start and ends, you know, by grades or something like that, uh, or by school locations and districts? That could uh, solve the problem. Fascinating to have spoken to Halima and Rami there. I had no idea. I live in a in a villa, in a compound, in a community. So I've never had any experience of, you know, queues for, for lifts and elevators. Um, but clearly it's causing a severe problem for delivery services. Right, we're going to turn our attention now to something entirely different. In fact, we're going to talk about sport because I have the fabulous Chris McCarty joining me on the line now, our head of sport. And there's a lot to talk about, isn't there, Chris? How are you doing? I'm very well, Georgia. There certainly is no shortage of talking points in the world of sport. And where would you like to start? I'm ready. Ooh. I'm prepped. Cricket, 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 cricket. With cricket, right, let's do that. We'll look ahead to today's match in just a moment, I guess, the big talking point, the big story from not just yesterday, but from this cricket World Cup thus far, I think is Pakistan's record-breaking World Cup run chase yesterday. They required a mammoth 345. That was after their opponent, Sri Lanka, made 344 for nine, and they're allotted 50 overs. And I thought to myself, are Pakistan, can they really do this? When they were 37 to the loss of two, I said to myself, no chance. They look dead and buried. None of it. Uh, they came back to win this inside 48.2 overs. A massive well done to them. Abdullah Shafiq and Mohammed Rizwan, they were the heroes of the hour. 176 runs from 156 balls. So they got there in the end, a six-wicket victory, a record-breaking run chase in this men's Cricket World Cup. Well done, Pakistan. Yeah, congratulations to Pakistan. But it was a good day for England as well. <laughs> it certainly was. Yes, we're not going to forget England. Don't worry about that, Georgia. They were beaten, of course, in their opening match by New Zealand. But yesterday, it was more like it from England. 364 for nine in their 50 overs. At one stage, I thought they were going to blast through 400. Give credit to Bangladesh bowlers. They ground England down a little bit towards the end. But in response, Bangladesh skittled out just 227 so a comfortable 137 run victory for Joss Butler's men that's more like it from England it's got to be said David Malin his superb 140 from 107 balls faced much improved England from that opening defeat to New Zealand they will still have a big say in the destination of this Cricket World Cup mark my words more to look forward to today though 
Yeah, India against Afghanistan. It's the home nation, India. Of course, another jam-packed full house down in Delhi for match nine. Afghanistan, a fine cricketing nation. They've made great strides in the last kind of five to ten years. But you've got to say on paper, at least India having beating Australia in their opener, you'd make India overwhelming favourites to get the job done once again today. That match, incidentally, it starts at 12.30 local time here in the United Arab Emirates. Now, I'm loving this story because there are rumours, and I like rumours, uh, that Lionel Messi could be heading to Saudi Arabia after all. Now, I have to say, fresh from watching the Beckham documentary on Netflix, all four series, I feel very knowledgeable about football and how people are bought and sold now. Uh, so, so I'm intrigued. I thought that he was going to make everything perfect for Miami. Yes, well, yeah, this is a story that's uh, emanating out of Spain. Uh, You may recall Lionel Messi has chosen to move to America and Major League Soccer with Inter Miami. Now, you may also be aware, Georgia, now that the fact that you're a footballing aficionado, that Inter (laughs) Miami actually failed to make the MLS playoffs. So what does that mean? Well, it means that Messi is now off for six months and there is some suggestion that he and his team may look to get a move back to this part of the world, whether that be through Europe, Barcelona, his former club have been linked, but reports out of Spain suggesting uh, that uh, a Saudi Saudi club uh, may well be willing to offer Lionel Messi uh, the chance to not only top up his bank balance, but to continue playing some football over in this part of the world. It's conjecture, it's rumoured at this moment in time, but watch this space. If Messi feels that he still wants to be playing football, if Messi feels he wants to keep his eye in, then a move to the Middle East or Europe may well be in the offing. On loan, that is, I have to stress, not a permanent move into Miami remains home for him and his family, but he may seek a little challenge, albeit on loan, over the coming months. So watch this space. That would be enormously good fun. Just think that you could go over and, you know, quick flight over to Saudi and you could see both Ronaldo and Messi in the same match. I mean, that would be really smashing for football fans in this region. Um, Okay, let's take a look at tennis, though, because uh, there is good news for Rafa Nadal fans. I count myself amongst that number now that Federer has stopped playing and apparently moved to... He's playing paddle. Everyone keeps on seeing him in Dubai playing paddle, which is very disappointing. Uh, but what about well, Rafa? Right. <laughs> well, Rafa, news out of uh, Australia. In actual fact, the Australian Open Tournament CEO, Craig Tiley, he's confirmed today that Rafa Nadal has confirmed to the organisers of the Australian Open that he will be back in early 2024 and that he will be partaking in the Australian Open. Of course, he's a 20-time, uh, 22-time Grand Slam winner is Rafa. He missed the whole of 2023 through injury. He underwent hip surgery in June. He has since come out to say that the 2024 season will be his last as a professional. And the good news is he is trending to being fit for the Australian Open. So that is cracking news, of course. He was the winner there in 2022. He is a legend of the sport. And if this is to be his farewell, uh, ta you know, over the course of the next 12 months, then at least he's starting with a bang. Yeah, we're here for that. That is for sure. It's always a good match when Rafa is on court. Uh, Chris, a pleasure as always to have you join us. Thank you very much indeed. Chris McCarty there, head of sport for ARN, head of sport for Dubai Eye. And of course, your drive time presenter alongside Sonal and Robbie. You can hear more from Chris from 5pm this afternoon. Uh, It's a great lesson. Uh, Three hours from five until eight.
The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.